This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. The topic I'd like to speak to, of course, is the Four Noble Truths. Um, And I hope that some of you have been attending and enjoying the previous speakers. I did get a chance to listen to a couple of the talks, so I got a little taste of what you've been listening to, but I wasn't able to hear all of them yet. So hopefully what I have to share doesn't overlap too much with what you've heard. Um, The previous speakers were each assigned a particular truth, and I I am covering the the four together. Although honestly, when I listened to the, the two that I listened to, I thought, wow, they actually covered all four. And I don't know if the other two did the same, but it does seem like this system is a whole it functions as a whole, and it makes sense um, to um, see the, the 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 whole experience of what does it mean to know suffering, its causes and its end, and the way to its end. So I'd like to begin with... Um, uh, telling you a little bit about a discourse from the Middle Link Discourses, the shorter discourse to Malankyaputta. And Venerable Malankyaputta was a monk at the, with, with, along with the Buddha, and he had ordained with the Buddha. And um, he is, has a lot of questions. Oh, his mind is just filled with speculations. Maybe he took too much philosophy in college. I don't know. But He wants to know the answers to a lot of the philosophical topics that were sort of circulating around um, in the parks where the the wandering uh, mendicants would get together and, and speak to each other and contemplate questions such as, what is the origin of the world? What is the ending of the world? Um, how did life begin? What happens after death? Is there a soul that exists independently of the body that might survive death? You know, they were discussing these kinds of things. And they wanted to know why the Buddha didn't take a position, why he didn't get involved in the debate. If he knows the answer to these questions, he should share his, his, his answer, his, his view about it. And if he doesn't know, he should at least say, I don't know. But instead, the Buddha remained silent and he chose to not answer, to not engage with these various speculative views. And Malankyaputta kind of gives an ultimatum to the Buddha and says, if you don't respond either by saying you don't know or giving us your, your, uh, your view on the subject, then I will disrobe. I mean, what a serious threat. But the Buddha still does not respond. 
he instead responds with, he doesn't respond as an answer to the question, he doesn't take a, a stand on any of the views, but he offers Venerable Malankyaputta a simile. And he says, consider a man who is struck by an arrow on a battlefield. This man, though he's been struck by the, by the arrow and a surgeon, battlefield surgeon comes to take out the arrow, the man who's been struck by the arrow says, wait, 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 wait. First, what kind of poison plant was used? What kind of plant was used to make that poison? Can you please tell me? And, and before you take it out, please find out um, the cast of the person who shot the arrow and the name of the man. I want to know specifically who it was that shot that arrow. And what did he look like? Was he tall and short? Was he dark-skinned or light-skinned? Was he big or small? And find out where he lives, too, on which street and what kind of home he has. And then while you're at it, find out about the bow that he used. Was it a long bow or a short bow to shoot the arrow? And was that, was the str were the strings on the bow made of reed or sinew or hemp or bark? And also, you know, ask about the feathers. What kind of feathers were, 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 on, were on the arrow? What kind of bird did these, did these come from? Was it an eagle? Was it a hawk? And the sinew, what about the sinew that was used to, uh, to make the, 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 um, the, the, the bow and arrow? Um, was, it, was, did, was, that, was that sinew that bound the shaft together, was that sinew from a buffalo, from a monkey, or from an ox? And it, it goes on and on like this. I mean, it just goes on and on. It goes about the type of arrow, the type of, was it toothed arrow? The point is, what's the point here? The guy's going to die, right? Before he gets all his questions answered, he's going to die. And maybe we're in the same position. Maybe there are philosophical views that circle around our minds that we will die before we ever know what is actually true. The Buddha said that he left these views undeclared. He did not take a stance on them, quote, because it is unbeneficial, does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to nibbana. And then he says, and what is it that I declare? He says, quote, I declare this is dukkha. This is the origin of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is the way leading to the end, ending of dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali term that we usually translate as suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And it continues. And why does the Tathagata, what he, that's the Buddha, the Tathagata declare this? Because it is beneficial, it belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life, it leads to disenchantment, to peace, to direct knowledge, and to Nibbana. So the Buddha was acknowledging that there are various views about many things in this world. 
But whether the, there is the view that the world is eternal or the view that the world is not eternal, or all the various views about the origins of the universe, the ending of the world, or the, the, the soul, or what happens after death, there still is birth, aging, and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And the Buddha says, it is the destruction of this that I prescribe here and now. So I think this is basically an exploration of, of, of what questions to ask. Here, somebody is asking the wrong question. So it invites us to consider what do we ponder? What do we think about? What is the effect of our questioning? Does our inquiry deepen and inspire our practice? Or do our questions kind of spin us out in confusion, creating rather endless speculations? We have to know what to ask, not only of the Buddha, but what to ask ourselves in practice. What do we inquire into? Can we pose questions that lead to our liberation and not solidify refined spiritual beliefs. When reading the suttas and the traditional Buddhist texts, we can be watchful for any danger that we might get entangled in some of the peripheral aspects of the text, the bits of culture and tradition, the myth and the legend, the magical powers and gods and all the various embellishments and conventions and politics of the time that come through this really extraordinary literature of the Buddhist suttas. Thousands of dialogues have been recorded, remembered and recorded from the time of the Buddha. And we have to sift through these thousands of, of, of dialogues that the Buddha had during his 45-year ministry to sort out what did the Buddha teach? What are the core teachings of the Buddha? One of my teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, gave a simple guideline. And he said, if it does not relate to the Four Noble Truths, then it's probably not what the Buddha taught. Pretty simple. And so tonight I want to focus on these four noble truths. The first being dukkha. The noble truth of dukkha. The noble truth of suffering. Or unsatisfactoriness, if you prefer that translation. The description is, And what, friends, is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not to obtain what one wants is suffering. In short, experience affected by clinging is suffering. And that aspect of experience looks at the experience of the body and mind what in Buddhism is called the five aggregates affected by clinging. It includes the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, which is what composes experience. Dukkha is not considered unusual. It's actually considered normal. It's not considered bad or good. 
It's not even considered the problem. Often we struggle against dukkha, but our struggle is often misplaced because dukkha is considered to be simply a characteristic of experience. That's all, a characteristic of experience on this planet Earth. Venerable Ayakema said, Dukkha is really our staunchest friend, our most help, faithful supporter. We will never find another friend or helpmate like it if we see it correctly, without resistance or rejection. When we use dukkha as our incentive for practice, gratitude and appreciation for it will arise. This takes the sting out of our pain and transforms it into our most valuable experience. To have inner harmony, we must accept dukkha as an integral part of being human. If we dislike it and reject it, our resistance makes it worse and escape from it becomes a priority. But we can never eliminate dukkha like that, only through the abandoning of craving. So dukkha, this suffering or unsatisfactoriness, includes a wide range of suffering-like experiences that can include minor irritations all the way to global terrorism. They can be mild or severe, subtle or gross. It can include frustration, attachment, agony, horror, any sense of disturbance or dis-ease, pity, alienation, confusion, wanting, unsatisfactoriness, that feeling of being disgruntled, cranky, stressed, or out of alignment with how things are. When we're working with dukkha, we have to look to see how we are meeting this fact of dukkha. Are we meeting it as a fact of dukkha? Or are we claiming the suffering as mine? The first noble truth is simply that there is dukkha. There is suffering. Not I am suffering. Not life is suffering. It's just a simple, clear recognition that there is dissatisfaction, that conditioned experience is never going to be satisfying. We have to watch that we don't rush to claim pain as ours, claim suffering as mine. A friend of mine was uh, describing that um, when her mother got um, a cancer diagnosis, she immediately, her mind immediately went to, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Personalizing the experience, taking it as mine, which will actually make it much more difficult to deal with the fact of dukkha. So we don't need to claim it. We simply need to know it. The emotional turmoil that arises out of the personalizing of the experience usually compounds the experience of the pain and weakens our ability to actually work with it, to fully know it. From a, from a spiritual practice, we're not, tr- from, the, from the perspective of a spiritual practice, from the sp- perspective of freedom, we're not trying to merely prevent pain. 
You know, it's not about trying to avoid difficulties. We actually free ourselves in the face of dukkha. We practice turning toward the fact of things. So we no longer pretend that suffering isn't there. We no longer pretend that I will be happy if only I could get this, control that, arrange it like this, and have this this way. We also don't have to pretend that we're not hurt by that or that we're not bothered by that. We practice turning toward dukkha, recognizing it and seeing it just as it is. So the first noble truth involves admitting this basic fact that there is unsatisfactoriness in all experiences of body and mind. There is unsatisfactoriness in even the most pleasant experience we have ever had. Not to mention the painful ones. Now the second noble truth is the origin of suffering, Dukkha Samudaya. When we're exploring the Four Noble Truths, we're not only concerned with physical pain or the pain of aging and death. We have to look at the causes of suffering, the causes of unsatisfactoriness. And we see that, that the suffering, the experience of suffering, often comes because we want something else. We don't want it like this. There's craving and there's clinging for experience to be a certain way. It's our inner reaction to the conditions that surround us that really cause that sense of out of alignment, of stress. So it's not just the pain, but it's the suffering that arises in relationship to the pain, in how we relate to the pain. The cause of suffering is described as craving. I think this is important because sometimes people think the problem is the pain. But the Buddhist teachings identify what the problem is, is the craving for things to be different than they are. When we can understand that the pain isn't the problem, but the craving for the pain to be different than it is. That's where we get into stress. That's where we get into struggle. When we notice this craving for things to be different, we have a possibility of letting go of that craving. If the pain leaves too, great. But if it doesn't, at least we're not beating ourselves up and struggling with desiring things to be different than they are. We can simply be with the fact of how it is. We have to learn to notice the experience of craving, to sense that contraction in the mind, and to let, us be, let it be a signal for us to see how are we relating to the experience How is this affecting the experience of dukkha? 
In the Sutta Nipata, it says there are many kinds of suffering in this world and all of them grow from the same source, grasping. When a person knows no better, he gives way to this grasping and slowed and dulls go through one misery after another. So do not create it for yourselves. Use your knowledge to see how suffering develops in attachment. It's interesting to see how the mind develops this experience of attachment, attachment to views, attachment to experiences. The craving is not only the craving for, it's the craving to move away from, the craving to avoid, the craving for something different. We don't have to justify our suffering. It's likened to holding a hot coal. We just let it go, even if anyone would suffer in the same condition. We don't have to say, oh, but anyone would be suffering holding this hot coal. Of course anybody would, but let it go anyway. (laughs) There's a cartoon that I saw of a a person that's kind of like holding on to this porcupine, and the caption reads, I can't let go. It hurts too much. (laughs) Sometimes it's like that. You know, it seems like it's like we're we're so attached to our way of causing pain. <laughs> we can feel the craving and experiences of aversion to pain and unpleasant sensations. Just imagine a little itch. Maybe you're maybe you're wearing a wool sweater sometime. Where I I had on this last trip a kind of a wool scarf, and it would be like this little itch. It's kind of soft and kind of rough at the same time kind of cozy and kind of irritating at the same time. So when what is that experience? Say, take that itch. What does the aversion to it feel like? Can you notice the difference between just the sensation and the aversion to it? Is there a time when you can notice the contraction, the wanting it to go away, the about to move, to, to, to scratch it? And you can play with these little irritating sensations. Maybe a little bug walks across your skin, or maybe you're just a little bit um, kind of tired or sore. Those little painful experiences, not the big agonizing ones, but we take the opportunity to work with the little ones, to develop skill with the little ones when it's not so very difficult, and then we'll be in a much better position to know how to work with the big ones when we really are facing strong dukkha. We can ask ourselves some good questions, like is once we see the contraction around a painful experience or against a painful experience, then we can ask ourselves, is there another way of relating to this painful experience? Grasping can change. Can we notice when we let go of it or a moment that is followed by after the grasping passes, there might be contentment. We can notice that aversion can end and be replaced with forgiveness. Delusion can shift simply by remembering a broader perspective or remembering the Four Noble Truths or our aim. So there are many ways that we can notice the experience of craving and the way that our engagement with the experience actually makes the suffering worse.
So it's not just a moment of unpleasant sensation, but it's really a sense of being caught in a mental dynamic of suffering. The third noble truth is dukkha nirodha. And this is the noble truth of the, of the cessation of suffering. And this basically is the end of suffering. This is possible. It is possible to experience an end of dukkha, an end of suffering. That doesn't mean that there's going to be only pleasant sensations for the whole rest of one's enlightened life. But it does mean that the mental component of suffering, the craving for things to be different than they are, that will have ceased. So we practice letting go of craving. We practice letting go of attachment. We practice letting go and letting go and letting go and letting go. And in this way, we get to know our freedom in many, many little ways. Often when we notice ourselves resisting something, that's a chance. That's a signal to let go. On, on a long retreat I, I did a num- quite a few years ago, um, I was um, having a I was struggling with various things on that retreat. It was it was a hard retreat for me. There was a fair amount of dukkha, but I always had this cup of tea around four o'clock, and that was like my pleasant moment of the day was to sit by the window with a cup of tea around four o'clock every day. And I, and I started to feel very fond of this one moment of the day, considering everything else suffering, but except this one cup of tea. So of course, my teacher suggested that I renounce my cup of tea. And I resisted. I said, no, I don't want to resist. I don't want to give up my cup of tea. It's only tea. It's not coffee. It's freely offered. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Of course, there's nothing wrong with it. But what was clear to me was this strong sense of resistance. That's the craving for something. And so we get to know how our own minds, how we feel the resistance, the craving, the desire at work. And we ask ourselves, are we really willing to rest our happiness on getting that thing? I remember this because it was so petty. It was a cup of tea. Was I going to rest my happiness on getting a cup of tea? Or was I going to look into the mechanisms of mind that were conditioned to grasp? It's a very clear choice. And it's amazing to me how frequently we still choose the cup of tea. Or we choose getting the thing that we want as our route to the ending of the discomfort instead of looking at the mechanisms of the mind that are creating the discomfort, the craving, the attachment. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, used to say, it does not matter to what we don't cling. It does not matter to what we don't cling. Anything that appears can be a vehicle for our suffering if we cling to it or for our freedom if we don't cling. So we have to know the truth of suffering for ourselves and find that experience, discover that experience, that profound experience of not clinging. 
The fourth noble truth is Dukkha Naroda Gamini Patipada, which is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And this is described as the eightfold path of right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The unfolding of this path is not just you know, one powerful moment that occurs as like a spiritual awakening in the experience of meditation. It's a practice of a path. It's a practice of a way that includes our conduct, that includes the way we, we, we receive our livelihood, the way we think, the way that we apply our efforts, as well as what we do in our meditation practice. In the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a discourse that says, think not evil un." unprofitable thoughts, such as thoughts of lust, thoughts of hate, thoughts of delusion. Why do I say so? Because these thoughts are not concerned with profit. They are, they are, not, the, they are not the rudiments of the holy life. They conduce not to dispassion, to cessation, to tranquility, to full understanding, to perfect wisdom. They conduce not to nibbana. When you think, you should think thus. This is suffering. This is This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And then similarly it says, do not engage in unprofitable reasoning, such as the world is eternal or not eternal, finite or infinite, etc. When you reason, think thus, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the end of suffering. This is the way leading to the end of suffering. Do not argue such as, I know about this practice and discipline. You don't know about this practice and discipline. I know what's right. You don't know what's right, etc. You spoke poorly. I spoke rightly. When you speak, talk, this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the end of suffering. This is the way leading to the end of suffering. Talk not about kings and robbers, ministers, armies, panic and battle, food and drink, clothes and bed, flowers, garlands, perfumes, vehicles, villages, champions, women, streets, blah, 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 blah. There's a whole lot of like gossipy things one doesn't bother to talk about. Why? Because it is not profitable in the holy life. It does not conduce to understanding and nibbana when you talk. Talk This is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the end of suffering. This is the way leading to the end of suffering. We can actually bring these Four Noble Truths into the way that we think and the way that we speak and the way that we meet each moment of our experience. When we focus our efforts on this central investigation of how Dukkha arises. Is there craving? Is there clinging? Is there a possibility of letting go? We can see that any area of our lives, any interaction, any experience of body or mind, any experience at all, where is the suffering or the end of suffering in it? How does our engagement with that experience relate to the arising or the ending of suffering? How can we practice with that experience?
So we can notice what, how do we act and what is the result of our action? Is it leading to an increase of suffering or a release from suffering? We can notice states of tensions and the desire to be free from that contraction. We can notice dukkha in very simple, subtle forms, and we can notice it in very gross and coarse forms. Practice is a challenge to discover how we can, as one of my teachers, Christopher Titmus, often said, how we can take the problem out of life. How can we live without grasping? How can we live without clinging? How can we take the problem out of life? We inquire about so many things in our lives. We ask so many questions. But are they the questions that lead to the end of dukkha? Are they the questions that will free the mind and lead to awakening? Do we engage with speculation preoccupied with views and opinions? Do we make excuses, develop kind of like mental dramas and stories and ruminations? If we give a lot of attention to that kind of dwelling in our stories, we'll leave little time for what is essential, for the essential inquiry into dukkha, the causes of dukkha, and the ending of dukkha. We can investigate Basically, how we relate to experience, as simple as that. But frame it to understand, is that engagement increasing dukkha or decreasing it? A simple guide to our practice is to concern ourselves with these basic forces, suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddhist teachings are really rather simple. Simpler than many of the things that you learn about for your work or, you, or, or school. Many people, though, are fascinated by reified enlightenment experiences but miss the fundamental core experience of freedom. When sometimes people experience a letting go, a deep letting go, even without kind of lightning, striking, blissful, floating awakenings. And some people have these dazzling awakening experiences, but don't seem to disentangle themselves from suffering and fall into a trap of just the, I had this really cool experience on this retreat and find themselves craving more meditative blissful experiences or even worse become experts and start teaching (laughs) there are many skillful methods that we can develop but we have to understand what is the core of the teachings what is the aim and the aim of this path is the ending of greed hate and delusion, the ending of the causes of dukkha. When we're clear about recognizing suffering, its causes, and its end, then we can practice a wide variety of 
methods as we develop the Eightfold Path. We can practice ways, different ways of engaging with experience. We could cultivate right effort. We can um, consider our conduct. We can develop mindfulness and concentration and a variety of meditation techniques, all without attachment, without grasping, because we understand that attachment is the cause of suffering. The Buddhist teachings are quite simple. Sure, there are a lot of books one can read and a lot of practices that one can try. But the simplicity, the core teaching, is simply to know suffering and its end. In Vipassana practice, we know what arises in the present moment. We experience the sounds, the sensations, the emotions, the thoughts. We practice being mindful of present experience, But we're also mindful of our way of relating to the present experience, the quality of the mind that is knowing experience. And we can be mindful of the Four Noble Truths in that experience through whatever arises. We can bring these truths into our lives, not as Buddhist concepts or lists to learn, but as living reflections of how we engage with life, how we speak, how we act, how we reflect, how we meet the experience of body and mind, the experience of each moment. I'd like to end with just a few minutes of um, a meditative reflection. Just again, drop the attention into the body. Feel the body sitting. Feel the body breathing. Allow yourself to connect with the present experience of sitting here just now. supported by the simple container of the meditation posture, sitting and breathing. I invite you to bring to mind a few experiences that have occurred recently in which you could identify dukkha. Think of some slightly unsatisfactory experience, some mild ones perhaps a minor annoyance, a frustration, a a simple irritation. And recognize it as being unsatisfactory, as dukkha, as not the source of satisfaction. Simple as that. It's just what it is. And you might also bring to mind something stronger, maybe something that was more disturbing or caused greater suffering 
and be willing to include in your awareness to turn toward that which is unsatisfactory and to know it as such. And as you think of one of these or two of these or a few of these incidents when you could identify dukkha in your own experience, consider, was there any resistance to that pain or to that situation? Was there any judgment that it should not be part of your life? Was there an expectation that things should be different than they were? Was there anger towards it, aversion towards it, hatred, blame, fear? Was there desire or craving for a different experience? Can you identify what your emotional response was to the experience of dukkha? Can you sense within it some aspect of wanting? Maybe wanting the experience to go away. Maybe wanting a different experience maybe attachment to a view or an opinion, some sense of contraction around the experience. This is the second noble truth. If you can sense the contraction, you might be able to sense the possibility of release. The third noble truth when we can see how we engage to create the suffering, we realize there's another perspective, another way of engaging that removes the suffering. Can you be present with pain without wanting it to be different than it is? Can you release the wanting, the craving. For example, if we're feeling a stabbing sensation or a sharp sensation of pain, can we feel that sensation and know that it's an unpleasant sensation without the not wanting it, without the struggle against it, without the thought that it needs to change. It's just sensation being felt, simple. 
And then how can we practice with this? How can we nurture the capacity to let go of our conditioned resistance to the truth of dukkha in experience? How can we cultivate conditions of body, of speech, and mind that will support a path of release? Just in the experience of pain, we might notice that do we have an appropriate view about it or is our view distorting the experience? Are our thoughts making it better or worse in terms of the resistance and the craving and attachment? How do we speak and act about it How do we think about it? Sometimes complaining actually makes a situation much worse. Sometimes blaming. Can we be instead mindful and bring our energy and our effort to meet the experience just as it is with mindfulness, tranquility, and calm attention. In this way, we work with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Just in this encounter with an unpleasant experience, So how can we meet the experiences of life in a way that support the path of release? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.